welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Andrew. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'm one of our pastors. Um, it's a joy to be uh, with you all this morning. It's so good to be with uh, God's people and, and God's uh, family as we worship together and just love hearing us sing and worship. And it's just so fun. Uh, so this morning, we're going we're gonna to be picking up uh, in Matthew chapter 3, where we left off last week. Am I on? Can you hear me okay? All right. All right. But before we do that, um, this today's passage is just is kind of just one of those massive ones where it's like, where do you even start and finish? And we could preach like 38 sermons out of this text. So I'm just going to stop for a minute and just pray and just ask the Lord to help us this morning, to help me. And I just need a lot of help. And, and I know we do to, to in the beginning at all to just hear and understand God's word. But especially in a text like this, that's so massive. Can we just, let me just stop for a moment and just ask God to help us. Father, we just praise you. We thank you that we can call you Father. We thank you that you've invited us uh, back to you through Christ. We thank you that you've adopted us to your family. And God, we, we trust this morning that um, this word that you have given us is beneficial for us. And God, we know that we cannot rightly and competently capture you fully in a sermon or a song or anything that we do it it's always going to fall short god but god we pray that you would this morning by your spirit move in our hearts and through the, the preaching of this word and give us all ears to hear as we engage with what you have for us uh, we know um, that you're good and we want to trust you more and we want to love you more and we thank you for this word that you've given us to help us to do that. And so you promised us that your spirit is with us. And so we trust you in that. And we ask for your help in Jesus name. Amen. All right. So Matthew chapter three. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and flip over there to Matthew chapter three. If you remember, we just finished our, our plot through the book of Romans. Last week, we, we kind of revisited back into Matthew chapter three. Um, Pastor Scott taught us from the beginning of chapter three. And last week. We talked about this guy, John the Baptist. This is where we see this guy pop onto the scene, this, this John the Baptist fellow, Jesus' cousin, who we, we, we know a little bit about who he was and what he did and how he dressed and what he ate and the things that he, he came to represent. Uh, he, he makes it pretty clear that the totality of who he is and what he is about is kind of summed up pretty clearly for him. He, he's been given an assignment. This assignment is to, to proclaim, to make way, as it says, for the coming of Jesus. To, to be the one who would be right before Jesus to say, hey, as we see here in this chapter, he's, he's proclaiming this, this message of repentance because the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. It's at hand. It's in front of us. It's upon us. The, the, the thing that's been talked about and preached about and prophesied about for, for these thousands and thousands of years of, of redemptive history through the Old Testament times, through the people of Israel, through the prophets, all that stuff, he's like, repent because that, the kingdom is, is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is a simple message. And he's preaching this message in a very particular way. And he's, and he's doing this thing called baptism. He's he's. He's preaching this message of repentance, and he's, and he's calling people to do this 
act of baptism, which was, was a bit of an anomaly in some ways at that time. And uh, it, we don't have like the, the, the full clear picture of like exactly where that came from or how he got to be. But what we do know is that John was baptizing people and it made sense to the people at the time. And he was calling them to this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. And he was preaching this message primarily to the Jewish people. So he's showing up and he's calling out the Jewish people. And we see in the other, some of the other accounts of John the Baptist where he's, he's actually speaking directly to specifically the Jewish leaders, the priests. And he's calling them to repent. We see a little bit of that in the beginning of this chapter where he's like, you're, you're a brood of vipers. You, you guys are missing it. So you need to repent. So he's preaching this message of repentance to anyone and everyone. Whether you thought that you needed repentance or not, he's coming to you and he's saying, you need to repent. You need to turn. Turn from what you thought to something else. And specifically here, as he's speaking to the Jewish people, he's, he's telling them, you need to repent from the ways that you have been dealing with God. From the old ways of, engaging, of engagement with God that God has given you, you need to repent from those things. A little bit of a bewildering message in some ways. They're like, oh, wait, hold on a second. We're the priests, right? We're the, we're the people of God. We're the Israelites. What do you, why are you telling us to repent? We're the people who tell everybody else to repent. But he's showing up to them and he's saying, no, repent. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And turn from your old ways of dealing with God and we're going to see that picture sort of unfold for us more and more as we, as we see what, what happens next. As John is preaching this message, and as he's baptizing people, he's preaching this, this message of repentance. We see here now in our text, in chapter, in chapter 3, verse 13, that Jesus shows up. He shows up in the scene. Verse 13 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee, to the Jordan, the river Jordan, to John. He's, he shows up to John as he's going about his normal business of preaching his message of repentance and calling people to be baptized. And it says that Jesus shows up to him at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And now, that should hit you kind of funny. It hits me funny, right? You're like, wait a second. I thought John was preaching a message of repent from your sin. And Jesus shows up. That seems odd. So if that seems odd to you, it makes sense why it would seem odd to you. Because it seems odd to John. Right? John's preaching this message, repent, repent. He's calling everyone to acknowledge their sinfulness. He's calling everyone to acknowledge their need. He's saying that what you have... And what you have done is insufficient. What you've done so far is not, is not good. It's not going to work. And then Jesus shows up and he says, yeah, John, you need to baptize me. What? Why? In fact, John's like, he asked that very question in verse 14. He says, John would have prevented him. John's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You, un you understand what I'm saying, right? You understand that I'm, t I'm telling everybody that they're sinful and they need to repent. He's like, John would have prevented him saying, oh, no, actually, I need to be baptized by you. 
and do you, you come to me to be baptized? He, it doesn't make sense to him immediately. And you can see why. Because he's very clear in his message. But John knows enough at this point. He knows enough about the kingdom. He knows enough about his assignment. He knows enough, obviously, about who Jesus is in this moment. He knows enough to know that this kingdom that he is talking about, Jesus is of a higher place in this kingdom than he is. And to him, it doesn't make sense for him to be baptizing Jesus. Why would I baptize you? In fact, he says things like, I'm not even fit to touch your shoes. I'm not even fit to clean you, your feet. I'm not even fit to, like later we were talking about this morning, like John's message is like, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. Like he, he understands that very clearly. Yet Jesus here is saying, I am coming to you, John, to be baptized by you. crazy. Look what Jesus says. He's acknowledging this. He doesn't deny what John is saying. Right? He doesn't say, actually, no, John, I need what you are preaching. Come to find out, I actually am a sinner who needs to repent. That's not what he says, right? In verse 15, he says, let it be so now. Like, let it, let it be so now. Like, it's okay for this to happen. Why? For thus it is fitting for us, and it's interesting that he says us, because he's kind of including John in this, right? He's including, he's like, what we're doing here is to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. Now that phrase in and of itself, we could preach many, many moons on. But as John is announcing the kingdom that is at hand, he's recognizing that Jesus is at this greater place than he is. Jesus doesn't deny it, but he says, Still yet, let it be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. You are right, but this is necessary for different reasons than you expect. There's something else going on deeper and greater than you expect. The deeper magic happening here, right? The Aslan's deeper magic is unfolding. Jesus, in this moment, is doing a lot of things. <laughs> it's, it's hard to break, it's hard to summarize this down to a, a crystallized, like, one takeaway point of like, aha, this is what Jesus... There's, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot that Jesus wants us to see. There's a lot that he's wanting to communicate. In this whole scene, these, these few short verses, there's, there's, there's so much of what is being unpacked and opened up for us. So let's, let's, try to, let's try to get into this some. So this scene is the start, really, of Jesus' official sort of ministry. Jesus has been alive for about 30 years, it says at this point. But up until this point, he hasn't officially been sort of commissioned into a very specific ministry that we see in the last three years of his life. That he, that he goes out gathering his disciples and going around preaching and healing and teaching and all the things that he's doing. He hasn't really been doing any of that 
for the first 30 years. But now this is sort of this, this coronation, this inauguration, in a sense, of his official ministry beginning in this scene. And when we look at the, the, the fuller picture of Jesus' ministry, it helps us to look back into this scene to help us understand why he's doing the things that he's doing at this moment, which seemed counterintuitive in the moment. It's like, wait, what is happening? Why are you here asking to be baptized under what we think is this set of circumstances and this message? For one, he's, he's acknowledging that John's message is, in fact, true. He's giving credence to John's message and saying, yes, this is, this is the right message. He's showing up to John and acknowledging this would, this would be essentially why you would get baptized in the name of John. We talked a little bit about this last week, right? That you're, you're confirming that, yes, I believe that this message is correct, and I want to be identified with this message. But Jesus does it in a different way. He's not saying that he's submitting underneath the message. He's just confirming that the message is, in fact, true. See the difference? So what might he be talking about here when he says that this is to fulfill all righteousness? Well, there's a lot of implications, as we said. But today I want to kind of look at maybe three of them to help us to see, okay, what is Jesus trying to communicate to us here? What should we be taking away from this as we look at then the rest of Jesus' ministry in hindsight for us that we can learn from this scene that's unfolding? So the first thing that we see that is significant about Jesus being baptized is one that Jesus identifies himself with sinners. He identifies himself with sinners. Now this was something that was actually prophesied about in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. It says this. This is is a prophecy looking forward about who Jesus will be. It says, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. Uh, you can sort of see some of these like hints of like, oh, I'm going to see what this is about. And then it says, and was numbered with the transgressors. Transgressors meaning sinners. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Ah, So we see, right, this, this prophecy of like, the one who is to come, the Messiah, who now we see is Jesus in this scene, is, is saying, I am now here not to submit to the message of John and put myself under his message as if he needed to repent, but he's confirming the message of John and he is identifying with us as sinners as the Savior. When we get baptized now, it is a way for us to proclaim to the world that we identify with Jesus. That's why we get baptized now. We say to the world, I'm getting this, I'm getting dunked in this tank. I don't know where our tank went, but I'm getting dunked in, I'm getting dunked in this horse trough this morning as a way for everyone in this room to, to know and to see that I identify with Jesus. I'm, I'm committing to, to you and to everyone else that that's how I want to be identified. But it wouldn't be possible for us to identify with Jesus if Jesus didn't first identify with us. This is, this is what First John, John is talking about. We can, be, we can love him because he first loves us. We can identify with him as our Savior because he first identifies with us 
as sinners. It doesn't make him a sinner. He never sinned. But he humbles himself. This is what we see in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, where it talks about God made Jesus, the one who knew no sin, he made him to be sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Jesus never was a sinner, but he identified with us in our sin as a substitute for us so that he could take our place. On the cross, Jesus did something that he did not have to do. He did not have to die on the cross for us. He could have not done that. And he would have been right and just to not do that. But he goes and he does something that he does not have to do, but rather he chooses to do because he loves us. (laughs) Because he is doing it to, to bring glory to the Father through his love for the people. By showing grace to us, by going to the cross, a place that he did not deserve to go. So that we could be saved. And here we see at his baptism, he's choosing to do something that wasn't necessary for him. He did not have to be baptized. But he chose to be baptized. He had no need for repentance of sin. But he chose to identify with us in our weakness, in our sin. Out of love, he chose this. So at his baptism, he identifies with us in our sin. He, he chose to be counted among us by his grace. He didn't have to do it. He didn't deserve to do it. But he did it. He's setting a pattern for us to see. A pattern of his humility. A pattern of his his willingness to to get down and wash the disciples' feet. He didn't have to do that. He was in a position where that was not required of him. But he chose to out of love, out of grace, out of mercy. To sacrifice for us. So the first thing we see is that Jesus identifies himself with sinners the second thing we see is that in his in his baptism he he models obedience he's modeling obedience for us obviously if we keep reading the book of matthew we see at the very end in the great commission he says to the disciples go and make disciples and do what baptize them so he's he's saying One of the key elements of being obedient to God is baptism. It's in there. There's no no, uh, picture in the Bible of an unbaptized Christian. It's just not there. That doesn't mean that getting baptized saves you, but the Bible assumes that if you're a Christian, you're going to get baptized. That's part of obedience to God. It's part of us, like we said before, identifying ourselves with Him publicly. It's part of the Great Commission, to be baptized. And Jesus sets the example for us by being baptized himself. And he begins his ministry by showing us what would be central to our mission, this idea of baptism. It's not man's idea. Baptism is not our idea. Baptism is God's idea. And Jesus, being the perfect and obedient son, models perfect obedience for us by being baptized. It's part of that. He's setting the example for us. Jesus is more than an example, but he is an example. And we are to look to him as to how to live. What should we do? And he's showing us. 
get baptized. It's part, of, it's part of obedience to God. So Jesus identifies with us as sinners. He, he models for us obedience. And then the third thing we see, and maybe most significantly, is that Jesus' baptism is a picture of salvation. It's a picture of salvation. It's representative of things that are to come. The reason why we do baptism the way that we do it, if you've ever seen us baptize someone, what do we do? We take them backwards into the water, submerge them, and then bring them up out of the water. Why? Well, there's, that's not just because we made that up and we thought it would be fun to dunk people under the water. There's a reason behind that. It represents something. It represents this idea of death and resurrection. It, it's a symbol of that. That's why we do it that way. And we see here that it seems that Jesus was, in fact, immersed. It looks that way in the text to us. It says that he came up out of the water. It says that in verse 16. This isn't a sprinkling situation. Some people think sprinkling, that we're not gonna, this is not a debate about baptism this morning. We're talking about this particular text. It would indicate that Jesus was, in fact, under the water at some point and came up out of the water at some point. And this immersion sets the course, sets the picture for us of the picture of what salvation is and how salvation is accomplished by Jesus' death and his resurrection, by him going down into the grave and coming back out of the grave. It's a picture of that. Just as our baptism now points back to his death and resurrection, his baptism here points forward to his later coming death and resurrection. And this is where it really starts kind of tying together. We start to kind of be able to piece some of this together. Like, okay, this seems weird. Jesus shows up. He's asking to be baptized. Doesn't really make sense. John doesn't really understand why. Jesus is like trying to set the scene. He's like, just trust me on this. Just put me under, and it'll make sense in a minute. John's like, all right, you're the boss. Let's do it. So he puts him under, brings him up, and then something happens. It starts to become more clear, like, oh, this, is, this isn't just, as far as we know, what's, what's getting ready to happen next didn't happen for anybody else that got baptized by John. Safe to say. At least it's not recorded in the Bible, if it did. And I don't think it did. So it was pretty significant what happens next, right? The baptism itself seemed pretty normal at, at first. It's like, all right, get in the water. I don't know if he, if he was put on a swimsuit or something. I don't know. John puts him under, brings him back up. Up until that point, it's looking pretty normal, and then something happens. It gets weird, kind of. John the Baptist, who had been announcing the kingdom was at hand. And remember, he's calling everyone to repent, right? Everyone, Jews, Gentiles priests, prophets, whoever you are, repent. Because the old ways of doing things 
The old ways of dealing with God, the old ways of fellowship with God, are coming to a close. This is what, this is what John is calling the repentance for. Those things are passing away, and there's a new thing that's coming. And this new thing is being inaugurated at this scene. The things that God had given before, God had given, and they were good. Things like the law, the sacrifices. Those things were, were good. The prophets, those things were good. The, the priest system, it was good. God, God gave those things. They were good things, but they were not the ultimate things. Those things were things that were given as shadows that point forward to the real thing, to the better thing, to the fulfillment. You see that word there? Fulfillment of those things. A fulfilling thing was coming, and that fulfilling thing was here. This is what Jesus was saying. All those other things were good, but they were pointing to something else. They were pointing to something greater, something better, and I'm that thing. That's what he's saying. And this is clarifying. It's clarifying why John would be telling everyone, including the Jewish leaders and the priests, that they need to repent of all the things that they had done. Even the things that God had given them are finished. They're over. Why? How is this possible? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. This is the part that probably didn't happen to anybody else. <laughs> the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Probably different. I haven't seen that happen at any of our baptisms either. Maybe before I got here, but probably not. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my son, beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now that's a statement. If you have a file of one-liners from the Bible, that's, import, that's an important one. Put it in that file. This is my beloved son. Remember who's saying this. A voice from heaven, the Father, is saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, imagine for a second. Imagine that you are there. And imagine that you are a priest. You're a priest. You've been a priest for 30 years. You've been living your whole life trying to love God, trying to love His Word, wanting to follow Him, wanting to obey Him. You've dedicated your life. This is your whole life. This is your job. This is your profession. This is your calling. This is it. This is who you are. You're a priest. Every day you go to the temple. You're reading the Torah. You're teaching the Torah. Teaching God's Word. 
You following all the dietary laws? No shrimp, no bacon, no mixed fabrics. You're serious about it. You've done this your whole life. You've never tasted shrimp. You've never tasted bacon-wrapped shrimp <laughs> in your whole life. You're dedicated. You devote your whole life to doing what? Trying to please God. You've spent your whole life, every waking minute, as a priest, showing up at the temple, helping to make sacrifices for people for the, for the atonement of sin so that their sins can be forgiven, and God would look at you and say, okay, I'm pleased with you. And he would look at what you eat, and he would say, okay, I'm, I'm, pre I'm pleased with you. Oh, is that a... There better not be pork on there. There better, there better not be sh shrimp. Okay, I'm pleased with you. And this guy shows up from the woods wearing a weird fur suit, eating bugs, and he says to you, the priest, who's been in the temple your whole life, not eating the shrimp, doing what's necessary, making the sacrifices, reading the word, helping the people, trying to love God, trying to please God, and this guy with this fur suit on, eating the bugs, looks at you and says, you need to repent. Can you imagine being that guy? You're like, dude, point at somebody else. I'm not your guy. Point at those guys. I'm not the guy. And he says, no, no, you need to repent. You've fallen short of God's law. Uh-uh. Not me, dude. Every time the bacon-wrapped shrimp passes by, I abstain. That's not me. What would you do? Would you be offended? Like, man, come on, man. Who do you think you're talking to here? Why is this guy saying this to me? Why would he be saying that to me of all people? John is saying this because those things are not given to produce righteousness. It's not why they were given. They're temporary placeholders for the real thing that was to come. They were good, and they had their time. And you had your moment in the temple. You had your moment making your sacrifices day after day, week after week, month after month, having to come back. Oh, I sinned. I got to go back. Make another sacrifice. Oh, we got to make. A, we got to do another sacrifice. Oh, another sacrifice. Another sa every day, every month, every year. Sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. Why? Because those things are temporary. They do not meet the full requirement. They were given as a placeholder, as a shadow, as a thing pointing to the real thing. Those things were given to us, in fact, to show us that we cannot please God on our own. There were shadows of true righteousness. And Jesus shows up and tells John to baptize him. And Jesus comes up out of the water, and all of a sudden, the Trinity shows up. Son there in the water, the Spirit coming down like a dove, and the Father speaking. 
Something's happening here. This isn't just a normal thing. This isn't just a baptism. This something's happening here. We should pay attention. And this voice from heaven, from the Father, as the Spirit's coming down on Jesus, not on John, not on the people around them, on Jesus. And the Father looks at Jesus, the Son, and He says, This, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the one. You guys are not it. You, Mr. Priest, who's been in the temple for 30 years, you're not my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What? Gasp. This is my son. This is the one who pleases me. Scandalous thing. The one that is promised is here. The Messiah has come. This is the beloved son. And Jesus is the only one that truly pleases the Father. Jesus is the one who was foretold of in Isaiah 42. Verse 1, listen to this. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Pleased, delighted. I have put my spirit upon him. This was hundreds of years before this baptism, by the way. My chosen, in whom my soul delights, I, will, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Who do you think that's talking about? It's not hard to figure out who that's talking about. That's Jesus. And God is saying, yeah, remember that what we said in Isaiah 42? Mr. Guy who's been reading the Torah every day, you know you remember that verse. The guy that I was talking about, the one, the chosen one that my soul delights in, that I'm going to put my spirit on. He's going to bring justice to the nations. That's him. This is the one. There he is. And in this moment, you have a choice to make, right? When you're, when you're presented with this information, you have a choice. You can cling to your old ways of temple, of law, of sacrifice, or whatever it else is, it is. Whatever you have, whatever I have, we can cling to whatever we thought was working, whatever we thought would bring pleasure to God, or whether we even cared about bringing pleasure to God at all. You could cling to those old ways. This priest could have said, uh-uh, and some people did. The Pharisees, they did. They, they, they were presented with this information and they chose to cling to the old ways. Or you could believe what Hebrews 10 verse 1 says. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Did you catch that? The law has what? A shadow. The law that was given, it was good, but it's a shadow of the, the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, when? Sometimes? It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The law could never accomplish what God is saying Jesus has accomplished and will accomplish. He's saying in this moment, 
The true and the better one is here. The, the, the thing that the shadow of the law was pointing to, the sacrifices that you had to keep coming back every year to make, was here. The true and better. And from here on out, if you want me to be pleased with you, where do you got to go? Right here. If you want to be if you want to have God's delight, if God's pleasure on you, if you want to have justice, where do you have to go? God's saying, this is where you have to go. My beloved son, that's where you go. Just like Scott taught us a few weeks ago. Jesus is, makes it very clear. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. No man has the pleasure of the Father except through me. That's it. Why? Because he's the only one who truly is pleasing to the Father. He's the only one who does it right, who never misses, who never turns, who never forsakes, who never forgets, who never slips up, who never rebels, who never... He's the only one. And by his kindness and by his grace, he came and he lived the perfect life that we were supposed to live, that we should have lived, but we could not. And he died the sinner's death that we should have died, that we earned. He stepped in so that we might be saved. And how do we get this salvation? We listen to John the Baptist when he says, Repent. Repent. Run away from the things that you thought were helping you. Run away from your old ways of doing things. Run away from them. Drop everything and run where? To Jesus, to the beloved Son, to the only one who has the full, undivided devotion and delight and pleasure of the Father. He's the only place that it's found. drop everything and we turn we turn from everything that seems good to us this seems good this, the, the priest would have thought this seems like it's the right thing to do because it was for a while and now it's not and jesus says that's over it's done that's the old this is the new the new covenant is here the new promise is here the messiah has come and here's where it is if you want God, to be pleased with you. If you want relationship with God, if you want to be united with God, it's found here, and that's it. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, whether you're a Greek, whether you're a man or a woman, whatever you are, wherever you come from, however much money you make, whatever job you have, you're invited into this. You're not born into it. You don't earn your way into it. You don't graduate your way into it. You don't climb your way into it. It's found in Jesus. We repent our way into it. We run away from ourselves. We run away from our desires. We run away from our sin. And we cling to Him. And when we do that, He tells us that we are united with Him. We are joined together with Him. And we are, we are resurrected with Him. And we are seated with Him. We are hidden 
in God with Christ. That's where we are. If we are in Christ, if we repent and we run to Him, we're with Him. We're in Him. And when God looks at His Son and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, if we are in Him, guess what He says to us? Paul tells us that when we are in Christ, we have everything that Christ has. Every spiritual blessing is in Christ. That sounds like a spiritual blessing to me. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That sounds like a spiritual blessing to me. So if we are in Christ, guess what God says about us when we are in Him? You are my beloved Son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Why? Because you're in Christ. That's why Paul says in Galatians 2, when we are united with Christ, we are crucified with Him. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And the things that God says about Christ are true about us. When we live, Christ, when Christ lives, we live forever. And He says that about us. So if we want to be pleased, you want to be pleasing to God, Jesus tells us how that happens and where we go. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this reality. We thank you that in Christ we have your pleasure, your delight. That we can stop striving to earn it, but we can receive it by your grace. And you tell us that this happens not because of our works, but because of your grace, because of your kindness, because of your mercy. And so, God, we ask today that you would help us. You would help us to turn from ourselves, to turn from our self-salvation projects and run to you. And so we praise you and we thank you, God, for that. In Jesus' name, amen.